Welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues that impact our Black communities. So, Ray, today we're going to finish up our discussion with uh, Dr. Christie and Commander David Stagman, right? Yep. And we look forward to uh, hearing what they have to say about um, being in the military and being Black. For both of you guys, that kind of brings us to... Um, you know, we, we had one of the questions was about um, going to officer training, you know, program. I mean, obviously that that's been glamorized in the in a film, you know, such as uh, Officer and a Gentleman, you know, with Richard Gere and Lou Gossett. But I'm interested in learning what your experience was like, because that movie came out in 82, but you were a candidate in 81. You know, I mean, you went fresh out of Princeton, but you were a few years out of Princeton. You were a history major. What was your experience like? And, and Alicia, I'm also interested in what your experience was like from your point of view. So let's go to David first. One, an officer and a gentleman was focused entirely on aviation officer candidate school for officer candidates going into naval aviation. OCS, where I went for surface supply and submarine, only the first week has upper class officer candidates yelling at the incoming class. After that, it was strictly classwork by Navy lieutenants or Navy Master Chief Petty Officers. So Monday to Friday, eight to five, you're basically seated on your butt taking notes or taking quizzes. Physical fitness at the time, all we had to do was run a mile and a half, do I was better at push-ups and sit-ups when I went in. The interesting thing on the other hand, and this has a reflection on the black community in general, was swimming. You had to swim eight laps of an Olympic pool, tread water for an hour, and then go up on a 16-foot uh, platform in your wash khakis, your cotton khakis with your swim trunks on, jump, uh, take off your uniform, and then tread water. I'd gone to YMCA summer camp uh, where, you know, the YMCA council is, oh, you don't know how to swim? Right. Boom. Deep right. end. I think that's the West Indian uh, way that uh, we all would talk about. <laughs> Just take us to the beach and throw us in the water. Traumatize the people for life. That's what happens. But... <laughs> Swimming was known as the brother buster because the number of blacks, a lot more blacks had to do early morning swim extra instruction. But but in, in, in give us a, a sense, though, of fairness, you know, toward toward black candidates, someone like yourself. And did they discourage you or did they encourage you? I mean, what what kind of things got you the, to, to the point where? It, uh, here's an interesting thing. When we had to do self-evaluations and a couple of the comments on mine were, what are New Yorkers doing in the Navy? And or what are Ivy Leaguers doing in the Navy? Now, this is coming 10 years after a lot of colleges we know got rid of ROTC. Um, if you look at recruiting patterns, and Alicia can understand this too, the vast number of recruits, officer and enlisted, come from an L shape, from roughly the Carolinas and Georgia through the deep south, Kentucky, Tennessee, and then up the Midwest. 
Uh, the number from the New York City area is minuscule and minimal. So yes, there might well have been some racial in this, although some other black officer candidates I know didn't have any comments like this. Um, interestingly also, I caught, I was up at OCS in the winter, caught a minor case of the flu, so I had to miss a couple of days of classes and had to face an academic board. Um, and all they said was, you went to Princeton, we're looking at your grades, you had the flu, um, no need to drop you back. This was where the fact that I had gone to Princeton and the name, the vast majority of officers regard the Ivies very highly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, you have a small, maybe not small number, my first commanding officer being a perfect example where if you were, went to a good school, that was a definite mark against you. The fact that I was black and from New York were two other. My roommate, who's a white guy from Missouri, said, Dave, unfortunately, you ticked off four boxes. And I said, Evan, what do you mean? And he said, black, Jewish, um, since I'm Jewish as well, Ivy League, and big city Yankee. <laughs> he said, geez, Dave, how did you manage to pull four jokers? Coming out of having been in publishing and magazine journalism in New York in the late 70s, uh, there was a lot that, hey, if it's not open and in your face, roll it off your back. You want to be here. Um, this is the world. That's not a pleasant thing to say necessarily. When I was a reporter, I can think of two times where senior officers said, hmm, Toby Spar, Scott Fry, you had a much easier time with Admiral Fry. And I said, how do you know? And he said, I see the way you handle yourself in an interview. And I know both of those officers very, very well. As far as things getting left off of officer uh, wardroom parties and wardrooms are very tight. Getting left off the invitation list in a 20 officer wardroom, that's not accidental. Yeah. Not having the watch standing stations in the pilot house as junior officer of the deck or combat information watch center in the radar operations room that you need to qualify, that's not accidental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and if it is accidental, I have a couple of bridges on the East River. <laughs> <laughs> right, they need fixing. Alicia, so David had four strikes against him. How many did you have against you? <laughs> Actually, um, with uh, the medical corps, what you did in terms of your job was very similar to what you do in the civilian sector because it's, it's, it's medicine. And we had to meet the same fitness standards, but we were also working 100, 120 hours a week uh, as, as um, residents. And I would say what was done was covert as opposed to overt. And so a lot of times what was used for the criteria were often things that um, physicians of color uh, were less likely to perform well. So there are a series of tests, USMLEs that you have to take in medical school. There's three parts to them. And so the scores would be disproportionately weighted when they were selecting candidates for training, assignments, et cetera. 
And so that tended to disadvantage a lot of the physicians of, of color. And what would um, also happen is a lot of times there was what I refer to as the pitchfork effect. The halo effect is if you have something in common with someone else, even though it has nothing to do with the job at hand, you have an overall favorable impression of the person. For instance, if a medical student plays hockey and the attending physician plays hockey, they tend to think the medical student is smarter than they are because they have a commonality. And uh, so if a physician of color or a student of color didn't do well on a standardized exam, they would tend to extrapolate that to they have problems with their clinical skills, which was not the case. And so, for instance, there was um, a resident who was, he was a terrible test taker, but an excellent physician. And one of the attending staff said, oh, he can't even deliver a baby. And I said, wait a minute, he has exceptional clinical skills. He's a bad test taker. And when he finished the training program and he went to his next duty assignment, we got a letter from the commander of the hospital. And we, they said, we just want to let you know how well-trained this doctor was. A woman came into the ER bleeding out and he saved her life. And we just want to thank you. This was the same person that they tried to say couldn't even do a delivery. Right. And it was just an issue of he was a bad test taker. And with, you know, some tutoring, that was uh, corrected as well. Uh, and so um, that was a way they could legitimize negative evaluations or uh, lack of selection. Um, and so we, we did see uh, a fair amount of that. But as I said, within the medical corps, it was virtually never overt. You know, um, just so fascinating, but um, since you're both officers, um, let me take you to the question about, um, and the question we sent you was mainly on the Army, so I apologize for that. But um, in uh, Veterans Day, there was a survey that was uh, published that showed Black people make up about 22% of enlisted soldiers, 16.5% of warrant officers, which truthfully, I don't even know what that is, <laughs> and 11% of uh, as, uh, um, officers on active duty. They also gave the quote that there was 96 command brigades, and maybe somebody can explain what that is, <laughs> led by a colonel, and only two of those 96 were Black. So given what you all have just said about the officers training and you know getting training, I'm wondering um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I saw a, later on a, a, a social science study from Northeastern University that was trying to explain it using implicit bias, right? And, and so in a little bit, Alicia, that might be that some of that covert uh, um, responses you were seeing. But I'm, I'm curious as to what you all think about the low numbers that were reflected in the newspaper article. Do you want to take that first, Alicia? Or okay. Well, I, I do think there is implicit bias. There's also a lot of subjectivity in terms of evaluations and in selection for leadership positions. Uh, so that I think disadvantages a lot of people of color. There's also at the very entrance point in terms of recruitment, oftentimes 
people of color, even though they have a college degree, um, will be encouraged to enlist instead of to become an officer, even though they have a college degree. And when I looked into the Navy Health Profession Scholarship Program for medical students, there was one Navy recruiter that said that program didn't exist. And so I think there are a lot of institutionalized mechanisms uh, by which they, um, people of color are discouraged from becoming officers. And even when they become officers, the route to a leadership position is often fraught with line, landmines because there is so much subjectivity to the selection process. Disparity between officer and enlisted numbers, especially for the Air Force and the Navy, um, officer programs require a bachelor's degree. And now there's a growing emphasis on STEM degrees, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Uh, graduates of color in those fields are just as often recruited, maybe this is hype, maybe not, by civilian firms. Uh, for the comment on two combat brigades, that would be a colonel is equivalent to a Navy captain. If you look at the ranks of the Navy admirals for the last 10, 20 years, 90%, no, maybe 80% of Navy admirals all went to one commissioning source, the academy, with only two exceptions, all the black officers who breached the three and four star stage have gone to one commissioning source. I don't know how it is in the army, but I'm going to take a slight guess that a lot of the combat brigades are headed by graduates from one commissioning source, West Point. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the New York Times had had a piece that often black officers are slotted into non-combat mission areas, uh, supply, trans quartermaster corps transportation, intelligence, communications, and the military services are heavily focused on warfare skills. Navy, practically everyone goes surface, submarine, aviation, or SEAL, unless you're supply corps. Navy has its own issues, but um, warrant officer, by the way, Michelle, that's a whole nother sticky wicket. In the Navy, warrant officers are senior enlisted who decide to specialize in weapons or engineering or admin. Army, I believe, warrant officers might be enlisted with five, six years in. It's somewhat similar in that they specialize. So for instance, some helicopter pilots are warrant officers. So it's, it's senior enlisted that have a specialty area. Okay. But um, officers, between junior officers not being slotted into combat, numbers of minorities with college degrees right at the outset, particularly in the STEM specialties, STEM fields, already narrows the number of minorities going in. 
My advice to any young minority who's thinking of the service, go to the academy or go to, I can think of about four or five ROTC units. One more interesting comment on this, it's very likely the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs is going to be black. Uh, Charles Jones from the Air Force. This is because we can thank in one way Donald Trump for this because Secretary of Defense Mattis wanted the Air Force Chief of Staff mm -hmm. to go up to Joint Chiefs. Trump didn't think that um, General Goldfein looked the part. General Goldfein is rather slender. Uh, so we picked General Milley, who, as we know, has that bulldog, beefy look. But, the, but he went to Princeton. <laughs> the Air Force, New Air Force Chief of Staff, um, General Jones, is black. He went to Texas Tech, one of the five big Air Force. And interestingly enough, he has, even if you weren't Air Force Academy in the Air Force, if you're a fighter pilot, that drastically increases your chances of moving up the ranks over tanker pilot or transport C-5 pilot or reconnaissance pilot. It's a fighter jock mentality. You know, it's interesting uh, what you say about people not being fed into the positions that um, can allow them to be moved up the ranks because we found my father's um, records from the Korean War and he'd written to his commander and complained <laughs> that they made him a clerk. <laughs> and that was not what he wanted to do because he was much more talented than that. And he thought that his talents should be recognized. Of course, mm. he came out as a clerk, but <laughs> you know, it's just interesting when my brother was in many years later, uh, even though he was an officer, one of the things that he complained about was that they continuously steered him out of the combat mm -hmm. uh, positions, mm -hmm. uh, even though he knew that that was the path to promotion. So mm -hmm. it, it's, you know. It's interesting. I'll give another example. When I went into the reserves, I didn't have my surface warfare qualifications, but I took on collateral duties in unit intelligence officer or unit public affairs. I applied for a change of designator to become a public affairs officer, but because I was working first for Jane's, the British defense publisher, and then Navy Times, it was viewed as conflict of interest. Um, I have my own views about this because I know several other officers who've been in the media who've uh, been picked up, but... Were they white? Yes. Yeah, so this is a show for black people. It's Nubian Tigers talk. Not, we, we do not try to be delicate with the issue about race and racism in the United States. On the other hand, when I most of the units I was in were harbor control or military sea lift. When I was a lieutenant commander, I applied for the Naval Historical Center unit. I was a history major, and six officers were interviewed. And I was the one selected, as Captain Devlin said, you were the one who had the references from Naval War College. I was taking their off-site program from two previous commanding officers. Um, I was the only lieutenant commander in, an, in a unit of captains and commanders. It was out of the mentoring I got in that unit that I 
almost went to Europe for a year recall, except my parents were on their last legs, and I didn't feel I could go out CONUS as staff duty at NATO, not something typically given to reservists. As it turned out, I ended up doing 60 days helping with a major exhibit at the Smithsonian on submarines in the Cold War. Then a year on a Pentagon review panel as one of three reserve officers. And then later a year as uh, one of the two officers implementing a major program in throughout the DOD, the Department of Defense, on joint qualification system. The other interesting thing about that is that in three of the jobs I've had in, as a civilian in the federal government, in two of them I was told by the interviewer, I did not like Admiral Sestak, but anyone who served on his staff for a year, I don't have to see any of your other references or qualifications. He only chooses the best. Let me ask you about that reservist. Um, let, me, let me pull us back to the present now. Uh, um, so we go full circle. Since you are a reservist, I was wondering uh, what you thought about, or if you're able to speak about it, um, the reservists being used last summer during the George Floyd demonstrations. You I can that. easily. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go. Uh, no reservists were used. National Guard were used. Oh, okay. What's the difference between the two? National Guard are normally under their state governor, although they can be federalized as some of them were in the late 60s during the urban riots or during the desegregation. A lot of the police forces used during the uh, protests last summer were from the different Department of Homeland Security police forces. Mm -hmm. Um, where D DHS has, what, 17 agencies, half of which have their own police departments. Right. And it was much easier for civilian control out of by the president than National Guard, where you have state governors who might not appreciate it. Right. And in fact, that is exactly what happened as yep. uh, Virginia and state, Maryland withdrew their troops. Yep. That some of the states out west, I believe Wisconsin, Minnesota, used their National Guard. The other interesting thing here is that it's coming out in the book by Jonathan Coyle from ABC that Trump wanted to use active duty military. Right. The same way as MacArthur had during the bonus march in the Depression, or Eisenhower had when he called up the 82nd Airborne during school desegregation. Mm -hmm. And Johnson did, I think, only for Detroit or Chicago in 1968. And when Milley and General Milley and Secretary of Defense Esper pushed back on them, uh, Trump went into one of his also volcan volcanic fits. But you asked about, yes, National Guard are under the control of their state governor. They can, DC, and this is the other interesting thing, DC, because of the whole issue of who runs DC, is it the mayor or is it the federal government? The DC Guard is run out of the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's quite complicated. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. Fortunately, no active duty troops were used. 
and I can seldom see where reserve troops would be used. Well, that's good. That's a clarification for me then. Believe me, the number even I've had times where I've had to study up who does what. <laughs> Since you both have military service, and we know that um, uh, we had an attempted insurrection on January 6th in our nation's capital when a group of Trump supporting uh, conspiracy theorists tried to overturn our democracy. Um, I'm curious to see whether you all were surprised by the number of insurrectionists who were either retired military or still currently enrolled. Uh, I think, um, I, I don't know, you can correct me. Uh, Ray, am I right? That Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was killed, uh, was, was former, military. former Air Force. Yeah. Was former, she was yep. former. Okay, and we also had a, a couple uh, who were still in the military. So yes. what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not surprised. Um, far right groups, particularly uh, extremist groups, uh, white supremacy groups, actively recruit people with military backgrounds. And so I'm not surprised that there were a number of them uh, there at the Capitol. From what I understand, there were a total of 40 with military affiliations five that were um, active duty. Uh, so it, it is not surprising to me. And, and Alicia, that's current. They are still, uh, right. they are still arresting people. Folks are still figuring out you know, charges against them, but it ain't over yet. <laughs> no, and, and this is what, you know, in, in preparation for talking to you, I, I um, did a brief search, and this is from the Military Times from early November of this year. 10 months later, two of the officers are still on active duty. Still on active duty. Amazing. It's, 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 it's beyond amazing. This is shocking to me that two of them are still on active duty, that they were active duty or retired. The service unfortunately draws a certain number of people who have authoritarian personalities. Groups such as Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, do recruit from former military uh, and current military. The officers I know, well, this is me, are without a doubt totally upset and aghast. Interestingly, some of my former subordinates, and I listen to them on Facebook, it's a valuable source of uh, information. And disinformation. Information because I get to see what the other side is thinking. Uh, are still in that Trump talks for us, Trump talks to us. Uh, it says something, I think, between the levels of education that officers, although most of those arrested who were military were officers, that officers tend to have a broadening in their service, which would give them the view that plus officers swear their allegiance to the Constitution, enlisted swear their oath to the Constitution and the president. An interesting uh, difference. So, so Amusha, you, you've mentioned mental health issues in the context of uh, uh, women's vets. And I know that the, we know the connection between extremism and the army. Well, it's been known, right? Because if we look back at Timothy McVeigh, uh, when he blew up the Morrow building, both Timothy McVeigh as as well as the people who helped him were uh, previously in the army. They were trained in the army. Uh, I think Eric Rudolph, the guy who blew up the Olympics and the abortion doctors was also former army. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what, what 
can the services do or are they doing anything that you know of? What is one thing? Yeah, go ahead. What they are doing, um, I think can only be effective if they implement significant consequences rapidly. And so they have stood up a number of trainings and these are required trainings um, and they've implemented policies and they're doing more significant screening. But when you have two officers that are still on active duty, that speaks volumes about there being no consequences for that behavior. And so why would the behavior stop if there are no consequences for it? And the article in the Military Times, at least from the tone of it, it's as David said, the vast majority of active duty and veterans are sickened and appalled by what happened. Um, and for them to not face uh, consequences or at least to not face them in a rapid manner because the military can implement things like dishonorable discharge from the military separate from the civilian. So even if you argue, well, this is, this is something that has to be litigated in the civilian community, you can still discharge these people. You can still discipline them. You could uh, still bring back Flynn on active duty and court-martial him. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> Listen, let's, I mean, all we have to do is go back to Iraq right, in Abu Ghraib. All of the subordinate soldiers, a couple of them, especially this one female um, private, they were dishonorably discharged for taking a picture with a prisoner, okay? Well, taking a little a bit picture. more than that. Well, but I'm just saying that, that <laughs> because that was so public, right, right. They, they couldn't get around that, all right? They had to do something to that soldier. But they were dishonorably discharged. They didn't storm the Capitol building. Right, 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 right. And hold the vice president hostage. Exactly, <laughs> or at least an effigy. Well, to give as another example, one example of a black officer I do not hold in high repute, Colonel Allen West, uh, being of all the battalion commanders, lieutenant colonel level, who commanded combat forces in Iraq, he was the only one, or one of maybe two, and there were several hundred cycling through, who threatened uh, Iraqi prisoners with uh, shooting. Of course, he's gone on to bigger and maybe not better things because of his reputation. Yeah, well, he, but, rolled, that, he rolled that all the way to, to Congress for a while, David. Although, having had battalion command, battalion command, the Army operates like the Navy does. Once you've had a successful tour at lieutenant colonel, a colonel command is all but guaranteed. At least Navy, once you've had a successful commander level command, captain's tour is all but guaranteed if you did it successfully. So, you know, I, I, I do think the consequences issue, though, is important. And because if there aren't any consequences, you know, the uh, rot spreads. And if you saw in the paper this week uh, in Oklahoma, the head of the National Guard now has decided that he's going to defy the president on the vaccine mandate. So none, he has rescinded the order that the National Guard be vaccinated. And he's like, he's the one 
who's going to dictate what the policy will be. And you know, this is how uh, how the creep starts in when there's no consequences. So um, I, I don't know, I, there, there has to be something done and I don't know what it is. I'm not in the military, but, <laughs> uh, but there are things that could be done, but because there's some ambiguity uh, about who has basically jurisdiction over it because it did help happen in the civilian sector, um, some people have allowed that to give to inertia. But as someone said, and I, I can't recall who to attribute the quote to, uh, an unsuccessful coup that is not punished is practice. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, you know, this uh, with all of our guests, really, we're so uh, privileged and blessed to have such intelligent people join us uh, every episode. And, and you certainly are holding up the tradition <laughs> very well. So as we think about uh, closing out, do you have any uh thoughts or words about what we should be looking at in terms of the big picture uh with regard to either our folks of color who are in the military what what the military should be about can do or what what are your closing words for our listeners well i'll, I'll speak from the the medical perspective because although there are inequities uh, the military and the VA healthcare system are enhanced access to care. And there are a lot of areas, for instance, in cervical cancer screening, where women of color actually do better than sometimes Caucasian women. And mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't know is that the medical services for both the military and the VA are determined by congressional legislation. And so in order to expand any services, requires a legislative change. And so I think advocacy in that space can be very helpful to veterans in active duty in general, but I think uh, specifically veterans in active duty of color benefit from those sorts of uh, expansion of services. In terms of inequities, there's a group called the Black Veterans Project who has through the Freedom of Information Act uh, requested information about disability assessments and identifying disparities there. So the best disinfectant is sunlight. And mm -hmm. so I think by legislative advocacy and by not allowing individuals to not be required to share what should be public information, I think that can go uh, a long way to helping, as I said, all veterans in active duty, but particularly veterans in active duty of color. Great thoughts. The military can and should do a better job of screening for commanding officer. This would help both with issues of sexual assault and racial discrimination. I would still say recommend the military uh, for two reasons. As with some of my friends, once they had been in 12, 15 years, they recognized they were never going to make Admiral, but they realized I'll be able to retire with a 50% pension and medical care when I'm 42, 43 years old, old enough to uh, come into the government at a GS 14, 15, old enough to uh, go to business school, law school, maybe not at the same level as someone just starting out. I went into the reserves because my dad said, hey kid, it's gonna be a pension. 
Uh, well, $30,000 a year says, uh, yeah, that's a nice chunk for, and TRICARE. TRICARE is the military medical system for dependents and retirees. Practically all my uh, medicines, medical care, aside from Medicaid, is taken care of now, which I have a lot of friends who are, damn, I wish I had that. And I said, you could have signed on the dotted line. You know, today, and, all of that is so, so very important. Right, absolutely. Um, so important as people are uh, falling further and further away from any kind of safety net. Uh, and as most of my friends will say, I had a rather lousy time active duty, but uh, for the reserves, it uh, was a good deal for me. Okay. Well, um, I, I don't know if we had told you before, but we uh, usually post a resource page for every episode of the show. So we'll put up some of the links that you talked about during the show. And if you guys have anything you want our readers to be able to look at on their own, you, you know, please forward the links to us. And we or, will yeah, or even some of the, the work you guys have published in your career. Yeah. Uh, that would be, a, a, you know, Colonel Steigman and I'm sorry, Commander Steigman and Colonel Christie. And with that, we'd like to thank Colonel Dr. Alicia Christie, Princeton Class of 1977, and Commander David Steigman, Class of 75, for all their contributions as guests on this very important podcast. Be sure to watch for our final episode on Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk as we explore black athletes and their critical impact on social justice issues in America. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nubian Tigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for the Nubian Tigers talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.